Support for Wavemakers comes from listeners like you and the Tampa Bay Times. The Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper is available around the Tampa Bay area and online at tampabay.com. Thanks to the Tampa Bay Times for their support. Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And answering the phones for us today is Irene. If you want to join our conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 and she'll get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. In the studio with us today is Chip Weiner. He has been a Bay Area wave maker on multiple fronts. He worked as a photographer for many years, starting with a motorcycle magazine. He later worked at Creative Loafing, where he made photos of all sorts of things, but especially restaurant reviews. He still has a big following on social media, where he posts lots of great food photos and restaurant recommendations. He's a licensed mental health counselor and is clinical director for Tampa Bay Regional Critical Incident Stress Debriefing Team. <laughs> That's a mouthful. He's also an amateur historian and recently published a two-volume book titled Burgett Brothers. Look again, rephotographing historic Tampa with 900 pages of photos and text. Welcome to Wavemakers, Chip. Thank you so much. So good to be here. In the pages of these two volumes, Chuck... Chip juxtaposes photos from the Burgert Brothers, a company that chronicled Tampa for nearly a century beginning in 1899, with photos taken over the last three years in those same locations. Each set of photos includes a brief history of the building and its site. As a whole, the volumes tell a rich history of Tampa from its days as a sleepy town of cigar workers and immigrants to its current status as a fast-growing, dynamic urban center that continues to attract people from all over the world. So let's talk about the book. Awesome. 900 pages, nearly 900 pages. How did this this come about? It, uh, as many creative projects did, uh, was born out of the uh, COVID period. I was working on some personal projects, taking uh, portraits of folks that I met through creative loafing of creatives around town, having a ball doing it. And then the pandemic hit and it sort of shut that project down. And so I've got to have some place to direct my creative juices. And I was aware of the Burger uh, collection. I hadn't spent a lot of time looking at it, but as I began to study it, what I saw was photos that I could recall. I've been in Tampa since 1964. And I think one of the first ones that I rephotographed was a picture of downtown from behind Tampa General where you could see the skyline. So I went back and looked at it and said, gosh, I wonder what a photograph would look like of that now. And, and I took it and compared the two. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And so dug into the collection even more and found more and more buildings that look familiar to me. And so the project was born. I published a, a small paperback sort of as a proof of concept uh, shortly thereafter. When and was that, like in 2020? In 2020, I believe it was, Yeah. And uh, it was it was you know sort of a, an immediate success. I think it was the second best selling book at the Tampa Bay History Center. Um, so it, I kind of had my proof that I needed that this was a viable project, and I loved it. 
So it grew from that small book into these two volumes, and it's, but, it's just but awesome. 900 pages, there's so many photographs in there. What struck me was how, how precise you were on getting the location matched up pretty much exactly. Yes. How did you do that? It is important. I've seen other then and now books where the photography just isn't, uh, isn't key. They, they just want to show a photo. I wanted it to be exact. And as you can see in the books, the photos are very present. They take up 90% of the page because I thought that that was the most important part. Mm -hmm. And so as I studied the photos, I actually took copies with me on a, on a, a tablet so that I could look at them as I was holding my camera. I have some pretty good technical knowledge related to photography, so I kind of knew what lens to use. I have an app on my phone that told me where the light direction was coming at a certain part of the day so I could replicate that and stand in the same place that the Burgert stood. And that was sort of the technical aspect of, of how I rephotographed it uh, to get it that exact. But Wait, yeah, now what how about did, the time of day? Yeah, I was just I was going <laughs> to ask the same question. Yeah. Time of day, how did you figure that out? Well, I can see where the light is hitting the building in the Burgert photo. Then I pull this app up on my phone that says this is when the sun is going to be heading in that direction, uh, that time of day, and I could just show up and shoot it. So sometimes I had to wait. If the Burgert photo was a sunny one and it was a cloudy day, I'd have to wait until there was a sunny day because I, I wanted to replicate it to that detail. If there was a car in the photo, I waited till a car was present so that I could get that same shot. And I think that's some of the stuff that people really, really like seeing. And the thing is, it's it's not just photos. No. You could have just run photos and said, right. you know, here's the Tampa Gas right. building. Yes. And here's the park that took its place. <laughs> right. But you have done your own research. Yes. And added so much context. Yeah. And I particularly am struck by this because I was there when they decided to tear that right. down. Right. I was there when they were fighting over it, when the Likes uh, brothers decided... Uh, they wanted to tear down not just the gas plant building, but also the First National yes. Bank building, yes. two historic buildings. And I had, uh, just just a personal reflection, I had spent many hours gazing out a window at those two buildings yeah. because I happened to be working for the Orlando Sentinel at a, a tiny office in downtown Tampa on Madison Street. Right. Beautiful buildings. Fantastic. Unbelievable that they tore them down. Um, and as you point out in the book, uh, they were... Tearing them down, supposedly, to build a world corporate headquarters. Yes. And never got built. Exactly. Now, the park that's there, it's the Gaslight Park, I guess. Um, it's nice. Right. But uh, it would have been nice to have been able to save those. But one thing that you don't go into, because there's only so much space for yes, text. exactly. Is the importance of that um, uh, destruction, so to speak. Can right. you tell that story? My understanding is that... They decided to tear those buildings down. The uh, powers that be in Tampa decided to oppose them because of the significant historical architecture in both of those buildings. And uh, they went to court. The city lost. They tore the buildings down. And then the Likes Corporation went back and sued the city for a million dollars for legal costs and won, which in my opinion has stifled even today people attempting to preserve buildings because they don't have the money that you know corporate America has to preserve those kinds of things. And so recently we had a very historic building in downtown Tampa that was torn down. It was uh, there was the home of the original location of the Tampa Tribune and then there was a hotel where apparently Clara Barton had stayed, right. know, who, who founded the Red Cross. Right. 
Um, so you would have thought that would have been historic and worth preserving and also architecturally interesting. But And the city apparently made a brief effort to try to save it, and that didn't work either. And I think that's sort of the bookend, I think, of those two downtown stories. And, and this is a good... This is a really great illustration here. You have this beautiful building on one page and then an empty space, which is now a park. And my understanding is that Likes actually leases that park back to the city. So the city doesn't even own it. city doesn't own it, and they can't really protect it if, if the Likes decide to end right. the lease. They, they, could, they could finally build their word corporate headquarters. I'm not sure what's happened to the company. <laughs> but. Um, so as you were working on this, did, did you, any takeaways that you have about historic preservation, how we've done, um, uh, were there any big surprises or disappointments as you were taking these photos? I think both. I, there were a lot of the stories in my books, the history ends with, and it is now a parking lot. And some of that is very disappointing, but I would also say I am not against, uh, progress and building buildings. I think what happens uh, Tom, you were referring to the uh, the tar furniture building, I think. What happens is that it's sort of done behind closed doors, and then when the decisions are made, then it's made public, by, and by that point, it's too late. So I would just like to have really in the sunshine transactions and let people be informed about what's happening before it's done. But I'm not anti-progress. I'm not against new buildings coming to downtown, and there's there's other bits and pieces of that. I think the old Hillsborough County Courthouse was there. They decided to move, which they did, and they eventually tore it down. And there's a lot, and that's where the uh, Tampa Police Headquarters is now. But the thing is that after they tore it down, all these people started just really complaining, gosh, we should be preserving it. We should be preserving it. And my response to that is, who is we? Because my understanding is that that building went up for auction three times. No one came up with the funds to buy it understandably, because I think it was probably an expensive building. And so whoever bought that property then demolished it. And the we isn't, has got to be us. It's got to be the public. Government isn't in the business of real estate. They don't go around buying buildings to preserve them. They can help private parties preserve them with, you know, different actions and things like that. But if we really want to see more preservation, I think it's going to take a, a stronger voice from the public to make that happen. And I think one thing the city could be doing that it hasn't done, uh, which might have helped save the, the Tara building and the Tampa Tribune building and all that, would have been to identify the buildings that are important to the city's fabric ahead of time. Yes. So, I, I mean, I agree with you. If a, if a developer buys a piece of property that is zoned for something and there is no restrictions on it. And then the city suddenly steps in and says, oh, no, you can't tear that down. That's historic. Why didn't they do that before the guy bought it? Well, and thus I think we're talking about the Crest building because I think they put preservation um, dynamics on part of the Crest building. And so it's been sort of in play for, I don't know, 30 years. My understanding is, again, that the owner of the building has to apply for that status and if the owner decides not to do that, there's really nothing. I don't think the city can typically step in and say, nope, we're, we're not going to let you tear this down if it doesn't have that historic status. Yes, property rights is what that's all about. Right. Um, but I am also struck by the fact that as I go through this book, or books, I should say, it's really, <laughs> there's two volumes, um, how many buildings we still have? Yes. How many have been saved? Yes. And how many we probably should be thinking about protecting? Now, 
One I'm struck by, of course, is the uh, the old federal courthouse, uh, yeah, uh, which is now has been repurposed as a kind of a high end hotel. So right. much history played right. out there. I rode in a uh, an elevator with Santo Traficante in the <laughs> building and <laughs> okay. covered his trial uh, where he was actually uh, acquitted. Uh, and then we but, had cocktails in the bar some years had, later. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so a, a good example. So uh, were you were you encouraged at all by by some of that? Absolutely. There are several buildings in this city. I mean, in downtown, on Davis Island, in Ybor City, in Tampa Heights, that have been beautifully preserved, mostly through uh, private funding. I mean, a lot of, like, some of the old cigar factories are, are rehabbed by uh, lawyers. The German-American uh, yeah. building uh, is one, I think, that the city did buy and, and, and preserved right. the, when Dick Greco was mayor. That's another just cool story. I don't, I don't want to take up too much time, but they built... Yo, like, you can take up as much time as you want. <laughs> well, we have an hour or so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All these mutual aid societies were popping up in Ivor City, you know, in the early 20s. Um, Centro Espanol, Centro uh, Austriano, and and so the German club decided they were going to have, they were going to build this beautiful building on Nebraska Avenue uh, for their mutual aid society. And what a mutual aid society is, is members get discounts, if you will, because, you know, they, they have the, the buying power of a larger group. German club builds it in the, I don't know, 1912, something like that. But World War I is going on. And so all of a sudden there's this opinion about Germans in Tampa and really all over the world. And uh, they, they ended up closing it. They even offered to host the American Red Cross in the building because they, you know, they're like, listen, we're not, we're not over there. But the opinion was so strong that they eventually closed it. And yes, it has now been rehabbed, beautiful rehab. Uh, and it is now um, uh, medical... Um, Building for I want to say uh, Metro is the is the company that's in there, but n- nicely done rehab. Um, so if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers and WMNF with Janet and Tom, and our guest is Chip Weiner, and and he has uh, put together this two volume, nine hundred page book called Burgert Brothers Look Again: Photographing Historic Tampa. If you want to join a conversation, you can give us a call at eight one three. Two three nine nine six six three, or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we'd love to hear from you. What is your favorite historic building in Tampa and is there a site that you're curious about? See if you can stump the guest and say this building, what used to be there, what um, uh, what, what was there before. On the cover of these books, um, one of them has the Victory Theater, which is now the parking garage with the Tampa Pizza companies in there, but the parking garage for the Skypoint condominium and the other has the cover of um, Hialeah, the Hialeah fronton that is uh, around Del Mabry and Gandy, which is now a Walmart, Home, Home Depot. Depot. Home, Home Depot, Depot yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so 813-239-9663. I saw the pretenders there. DJ at WMNF.org yeah. if you want to tell us what's your favorite historic building or try to stump the guests and, and ask him about a, a location <laughs> and see if he can tell us what used to be there. Um Tell us, one of the things that you we talked about when we were getting ready, we talked about some of the stories behind these these photographs. Right. Talk, tell us a little bit about how you researched them and what were the, some of the most interesting stories that you uncovered. Goodness. 
there are just so many as as I've been developing this this ideas, and it's it's not just with the burgers; it's with a bunch of other historic photos as well. What I kind of determined is, you know, this old adage that every picture tells a story. But as I did the research with it, really, what it says to me is every picture has a story. There's always some sort of history behind it, including the people that were there or some of the stuff that happened. And gosh, there are just so many. <laughs> So many to pick from. I, I don't know. I, I think some of the things that stood out for me, because again, as I'm looking at this photo, I'm like, all right, well, let me say when the building was built. But as I look in newspaper archives and I look at some of the history, there are, there's just these cool stuff. There was a, a, a Stovall had the Tampa Tribune for, for a long time, started it in the early 1900s. And uh, it was going well. It was a going concern. And I think in the mid-1920s, he, uh, a woman came up to him and said, look, I'm going to give you $1.2 million for the Tribune. Well, he didn't really want to sell it, but he said, you have two days to raise that money and I need a $5,000 deposit. Because he knew that she wasn't going to be able to raise that money in two days. He took the $5,000. Sure enough, two days later, she puts a syndicate together and they came up with $1.2 million. He ended up then selling the paper, having to sell the paper, even though he said, listen, I don't want to be in this deal anymore. He ended up selling the paper. He was angry. Uh, they wouldn't give it back to him. So he financed his son to start another newspaper called the uh, Tampa Daily Times. No. Um, Tampa Telegraph. Hmm. It, and didn't it, last. It, it lasted nine months. You know why? Because the Tribune came back to him and said, we want to buy it. He had the greatest equipment, the greatest news services and all that. So the Tribune went in and bought it from him, but he was then out of the newspaper business. But whoever heard of the Tampa Telegraph? And, and it, it's that kind of thing that yeah. is just fascinating to me. I mean, you told us a story about that um, stone church on Columbus yes. um, Avenue that, yes. or Columbus Drive that I'm sure many people have driven by on their way to the radio station. Right. Tell us about that. That is an interesting story behind it. It is interesting. Again, my understanding is that the stones that, that was built from were actually taken out of Tampa Bay. And it has been a church ever since it was built and continues to be. And I think people drive by it every day. And it's just, you know, it's just something on their drive. They don't understand the history about it, but that is a cool building. It's a beautiful church and still a beautiful church and uh, really does a lot of community outreach with uh, poor people. And a, a couple of other things that I'm flipping through here that I, that I noticed that jumped out at me is that there's a Firestone store in downtown Tampa that's still <laughs> yes. a Firestone store a yes. hundred some years later right. um, uh, or nearly 190 years later. But in the notes, this picture was taken in 1933 and you note that tires there were 7 to $10 and batteries were $5.60. Right. Today at that tire store, the it's uh, that store. The tires are hundred dollars, and the batteries are two hundred. Right. But briefly, it was a home goods store during the war when um, people well, there was not selling electronics and and, and rubber. Right. Um, and then there's a the Jake Walker's Townhouse Restaurant. There's a sign <laughs> saying that it serves Hickory Barbecue. It's now a BJ's Alabama Barbecue. Right. Coincidentally, because right. that's relatively new that it's been there. Love BJ's. Yes. And then um, the the springs, Sulphur Springs. You've got pictures of Sulphur Springs, which so sadly is still a, a little pond that's a, a shadow of its former self. Right. And then the Palmacia Springs, which was a on, on Bayshore Boulevard, which was a massive swimming hole. It was. 
It is now Fred Ball Park. Um, someone bought it and decided to open a, a swimming pool there. And so they dug it out and expanded it and let the spring feed it. And a lot of people went there. There were three or four pools in the city and Tampa Electric uh, promoted them because people could take the streetcars, which is what Tampa Electric did, uh, to all the pools. So they had a nice uh, kind of media presence and all of that. But unfortunately, in that situation, uh, the interest sort of fell off. And at some point, a, a, a boy broke in, a little boy, you know, just looking for tadpoles or something, broke in and drowned at the pool. And so they, they shut it down and they eventually covered it up. But the spring is still there. And it's dedicated to uh, a lady who was, uh, Vicki Palaya, who was a, a big civic activist. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, just, um, it's nice that that still exists and that they were able to take um, kind of that tragedy and turn it into a memorial for her. You said there were three of those pools. So there were Sulphur Springs, Palmacia Springs. What was the third? Do you remember? Yes, uh, Goldstein's, which was right on the Hillsborough River. And huh. um, I have a photo of that on my website. I don't think it's in the book, but yeah, it was called. Oh, what's your website? Uh, there's a couple of them. The one with the most photos on it is called oldtampaphotos.com. And there's, it's not just about these books. There are, you know, hundreds of photos on there that maybe aren't even in the books and uh, with the history that goes with them. And it's really fun to look through. We have an email from um, Bubba uh, who wonders about the story behind Centro Asturiano in Ybor City. It's a great building. It's beautiful inside. I agree with that. And they've done a really nice job restoring that building. It, that was a, also a, similar to the Italian Club, right? Mutual, mutual aid. Mutual aid society. Correct. Is there more to that? Because so, it's interesting, there was also a Spanish club. Yes. In, uh, in Ybor City? Yes. Or, yeah? yeah, and there was another one in West Tampa, so right. a lot of Spanish. In, but the Asturianos, the Asturians, I think, yes. held themselves up a little bit above the regular Spanish, so they wanted their own club? Is that I, I think that's true, yeah. and yet they still... Uh, Emulated one another. I mean, those things had bowling alleys in them. And, you know, I think one time a couple of them had swimming pools. And as I think uh, managed care came in, that the benefit of being in a mutual aid society certainly disappeared. But the building and the architecture is still there and still just absolutely beautiful. And it's on the National Register of Historic Places. I believe I'm reading is. right here because yes. this is in your book on pages 10 and 11, looking almost exactly the same. <laughs> and just as you said, you waited till a car went by. Now that you said that, I'm noticing right. that that you have a car placed exactly where this cool old car was placed in the, in the old photo. That's right. awesome. Um, we also have an email from David Bryant, and he wants to know, I don't know what this building is. He's thinking about the old building where Florida Championship wrestling matches oh, yeah. were held. Does that building still Off exist? Kennedy in West Tampa, I saw wrestling matches there. Yeah, it's it's still there. Uh, I think that's in the book as well. Didn't they call it the Sportatorium? Sportatorium. Gordon which is a Sully. pretty big name for what was a pretty <laughs> tiny little building, but yeah. I, I believe it's in there. I, it was, I want to say, odorless cleaners. Um, it started <laughs> out as, and uh, then sort of graduated into the Sportatorium. And uh, yeah, again, just this historic stuff. There's another building in downtown Tampa that's sort of fallen into disrepair, and I don't think people would really recognize it. It's on Tyler Street, I think, and it used to be Worthingston's Bakery. And the photo in the book is of all these delivery trucks out in front of the bakery getting ready to take their their stuff out into the city. And now it's this sort of beat-up building, but what people would recognize is that um, 
Kutro's Music, which was ah. a big thing in Tampa for a long time, was yep. in that building as well. I met the lady who owns it at a function where I was presenting some of this work. She came up and told me about her ownership. She says the old oven is still in that building from back when it was Worthington. So it's bits and wow, pieces like amazing. that. It's just amazing. Well, you know, it strikes me uh, that uh, you would not have been able to do this uh, if it wasn't for, A, the Burgett brothers having taken all these great photos, and right. B, someone having the uh, forethought to collect all these and place them uh, in the special collections at the public library in downtown Tampa. Right. So tell us a little bit about the Burgett Brothers, because you also have a photo of the Burgett Brothers Studios in Ybor City yes. on 7th Avenue, which, as you point out, uh, later became Blue Chair, right? Yes, it did. Uh, our friend Marty Clare was uh, the owner of that. That's right. Um, yeah. So uh, tell us about that, how they, the Burgett brothers came here, how they started these. and The dad, Samuel, came here around uh, 1900 and started a, uh, a photo company uh, in Ybor City. They took mostly portraits. He had five sons who got involved in the business, and two of those sons bought out what was called Fishbaugh Photography, I think, in 1915, which really started their commercial photography operation. So they went from portraits to commercial. There's a whole... History, again, I'd, I'd love to do an entire show really on where it came from, but the bottom line is as that collection kind of fell into different kinds of hands, it eventually ended up at the Hillsborough County Library. The majority of them did uh, not in good shape because they were kept in a garage in file cabinets in Palmasia for years, Ooh. just sort of rotting away both the negatives and the prints. And the, uh, the collection was sold to the library for $2,500, I'm going to say like in late 1970s. And since that time, they have been digitizing them, preserving the negatives to the extent possible, and making them all available to the public, which is one of the pieces that when it was sold, they said these have to be available to the public. And let me also mention, though, that part of the collection is at the USF Library. They have some Burgerts, some Robertson and Fresh, who are uh, another company back in the day. And most importantly, I think that uh, they've, they're about to publish 80,000 photos of Skip Gandy, who was a Tampa photographer. And uh, wow, what a cool collection he's got as well. So a little plug for them. Well, you just mentioned USF, and we have an email right now from Andy Hughes, who awesome. works in USF Special Collections. He's got two questions. One, if you could travel in time and take photos of any historic site in Tampa, where are you going and what or who are you shooting? Oh, I know what my answer would be. And if you could dine in any local restaurant in the past, where would it be? Wow. Andy, hey, thanks for calling in or for, for writing, man. I, Andy is, is just the greatest. That guy, he's has so much knowledge about Tampa and about so much stuff. He's written several books and what a cool... And food. He's a, he's yes, a food. fellow also, wave maker, author yeah, of the, the history of the Cuban awesome. sandwich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just uh, awesome. So thanks, Andy. Okay, back in time, shoot a place and a person. You know, I, I think one of the people that I just really, really am sad that I didn't get to meet was Tony Pizzo, who was a historian. He's a, he's a Tampa know-it-all and... Never got to meet him. I've seen some of the YouTubes with him on it. But if I could go back and meet someone and photograph them, and I'd like him to take me to his favorite place and <laughs> let me see uh, and get some of his input. Well, on I can it. tell you one of his favorite places because I had lunch with him at Valencia Garden. Oh, did you really? Also another place that uh, yeah. doesn't exist Doesn't anymore. exist another anymore. Another great uh, right. kind of gathering place in Tampa that's right. gone. Yeah. 
Um, we've got a couple calls. Let's go to the phones. We've got Mike from Tampa. Mike, you are on the line. What's on your mind? Hey, good morning. Mike Lawson here. Hey, Chip, how you doing? Hey, Mike, how you doing, buddy? Fun of games, man. Listening, having a good time listening to you here. Awesome. Hey, quick question. Um, while sitting here, and I have your books here, and I was looking at a butcher book, uh, pulled one out of the case here. All those guys had a truck or a vehicle that they used out of necessity for their to do their work, all the equipment and, and the platform to do the photos from. Right. Um, you know, Ansel Adams used the Woody. I think Butcher had a travel wall. Uh, I saw one picture of the Broken Brothers. I guess that's an old Plymouth or Packard uh, panel truck. Mm-hmm. Right. Is there a chipmobile? <laughs> I love it. Notice I didn't say Wienermobile. Because <laughs> there is. Because there is, there is one. That's copyrighted. Is there, did, you, did you have to modify a car or truck or something so you could get up in the right elevation to take some of these photos? I did. Initially, I did. I had a Honda Element. I put a pallet on top of it and stood up there and took some of the photos. And it's done for a couple of different reasons. Technically, when you aim a camera straight at something, you have less distortion in the photograph because there's a thing called lens distortion. But as importantly, uh, you know, there used to be parking spaces all over Tampa. They could pull up on Lafayette, what is now Kennedy, into a parking space and shoot across the street, but cars would get in the way. So standing up on top of their vehicles, they had a clean shot of whatever they were trying to shoot. And so, yes, I did do that. And then I was able to figure out some other ways of rigging it up. I put it on a tall light pole and was able to control the uh, camera with my phone. And so I could still get the height without standing standing on my car. But awesome question. Thanks, dude. Great question, Mike. Thanks for the Thanks, call. Mike. We've also got um, Mario on the line. This is Mario. He is <laughs> Mario the host of Down and Dirty on Friday mornings. He's down. Co-host Mario. with John Dingfelder. Welcome, Mario. Mario, nice. welcome. What's up? What's your question for Chip? Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for uh, taking my call. Chip. Hola, Mario. I'm cashing, I'm cashing it in, brother. Okay, so, all right. I just, I just <laughs> wanted you to know, <laughs> inside joke, you can tell Janet and Tom when we get off the air. All right. But, um, no, you know, it's more of a comment than it is a question. And Chip and I are dear friends. Um, thank you for all the hard work that you do, my brother, because... You know, you and I both came up in this in this town, and and we see it changing and morphing into something other. Um, and some of us old timers, man, we're going, you know, we're going down hard with this. We, you know, we're trying to do all the history preservation we can, and it seems like we're at the shore's edge and building a sandcastle. You know how that never works out. But but your work, your hard work, is giving us hope. And if nothing else, it, it li- it'll live on forever. So your camera. Your words, because you know you're you're a pretty prolific writer as well. Uh, just thank you from another uh, person who uh, loves our history, lives our history, and and continues to talk about it. So thank you, and thank you, Janet and Tom, for. Uh, bringing Chip on today and sharing his story with us. We thank, love you guys. Thank you so much, Mario. And Mario is another one. I mean, you know, just impeccable, the amount of knowledge he has related to Tampa and its history, and especially in the, you know, his, Hispanic uh, community, but just citywide, countywide, he's connected, and the dude has just got a brain full of Tampa history. So thanks for calling in, Mario, and thanks for your, and your kind words. Interesting, you know, one of the things that you say, this we'll move on to another topic, but in the um, the front of the book, you say well, your hope is that 50 years from now, somebody else will go back and yes. do another update, which is interesting. We were, I think we were talking about it earlier, but this one page 186 of, of volume... 
<laughs> one, the um, pastime bingo oh, yeah. building that's at the corner of, um, uh, where is that? Twigs and that's Tampa the, Street. That's the old tar furniture building that they just tore down. That they just tore down. So interesting that, you know, you were able to photograph it when the first wa- first watch was there. Right. And now that's that's gone just um, however many years later you took this photo. That was in 2021 or right. when you took it. But that it's already that corner is now different than it was two years ago. And I think that's, again, part of my hope in asking other people to kind of pay attention to this. It's always moving. If I look at through some of the f- photos in those books, yeah, those buildings are gone or they've already changed. And so preserving what it looks like now, it's just a snapshot because it's always in motion. And to, to have that kind of history, I think, is important. Uh, and 50 years from now, gosh, how cool it will be to see what it looks like then. But how many, how long did this take you? You, you said you started in 2020. You published that initial book. You've got uh, almost 1,000 pages of photos. Right. How long did this take? About three years. Three years. Right. Um, is there a certain obsessive quality to this? <laughs> How dare I have, you? I have to say, <laughs> since you are a mental health uh, practitioner, <laughs> and apparently you, you might be. I mean, you're able to diagnose it <laughs> <them> easily. <laughs> How, but but uh, it does take a certain uh, amount of of kind of you know obsession. It does to want to. I'm not just going to do you know fifty. Right. I'm going to do as many as I possibly can. Right. Right. It, it was, and I've, I've dug into my brain <clears throat> several times just asking myself, what is this? Because almost every night, you know, for three years, I'm, I'm on the computer, I'm writing stuff up, I'm doing research and just trying to figure out what it's all about. And I, I never lost my fascination for it, just never. Well, it is super fascinating. It really it, is. Yeah, it's really fun. It's all these familiar places. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, the... There's a corner two blocks from my house on here. So it's just fascinating yeah, to look at it, it really and see is. like, wow, that's really cool. My house was built like five years before that photo was taken. Um, and it certainly looks vastly different than what it looks like now. Yeah, it's really interesting. But, you know, that's part of the juice for me is that I get to share this stuff. I get to put it online and, and you know, uh, on Facebook and stuff. People look at those photos and they identify with it and they say, oh, gosh, I remember that. And that's really the cool part for me. It's not just my journey back into time and letting me reminisce. It's that everyone else wants to do it too. And everyone just just jumps on it. And and I just think it's awesome. Uh, We've got an email from somebody who, um, this is Bubba, who wants you to talk about the Seminole Heights Garden Center. That's a beautiful building. What do you know about that? I, I have seen it. I've taken photographs of it. I do not know of any Burgert photographs of it. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, red brick building, mm-hmm. really nicely done. I don't know if there are any Burgert. I've not seen any Burgert photographs of it. Uh, but uh, just to clarify, the Burgert Brothers' photos, are most of them are available on, online through the public li- library? Correct. Right? Or through the USF library? Both, right. Uh, so you can, you can go to the USF uh, or the library website and peruse all you want because they are all there. And so we want to move on and talk a little bit about um, uh, food photography. But before we do that, tell us where people can get the book, where they can see your photos. Okay, thank you. The uh, book is available at the Tampa Bay History Center. All three of the books are. They are available at uh, oldtampaphotos.com as well. The books are there as well as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a bunch of photographs that aren't necessarily in the book but really talk a lot about uh, Tampa history. All right, we'll be right back after this um, very brief break to talk more with um, photographer Chip Wiener. Boom, 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 
Iguanas playing the Floridian Friday, September 29th for WMNF's 44th birthday bash. Tickets are on sale now at WMNF.org. The dedication. All right. We are back. Um, this is um, Wavemakers on WMNF. Uh, you're with, listening to Janet and Tom, and we're talking to photographer um, Chip Weiner. We've been talking about his book, um, Burgett Brothers, Look Again, Rephotographing Historic Tampa. And now we're going to move on to something a little bit different. Chip is also an amazing food photographer, and um, I don't know about you, but I frequently go out to eat and have this beautiful-looking plate put in front of me, and I take a picture of it, and it looks disgusting. Um, so wh- I want to know what the secret is. What is? Can you tell us what is the secret to great food photography? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice. Oh. And, and I was really going to say you go left on this. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it's, it, it is. It's a lot of practice. It's, it's a lot of investment. And it's, you know, I, I've seen, gosh, thousands of photos of food. I've watched, you know, back in the day, maybe some YouTubes or something, but it's taking my camera and, and being fearless about it and how you shoot food. Because sometimes, gosh, God bless my wife. We'll go into a nice restaurant and here's Chip pulling out his camera and a reflector or a light or something because, by gosh, I'm going to get that shot just right. And so there's, there are some techniques, there's some equipment involved, but what I will tell you is, if you practice, I don't think you need all that stuff. Today's phones take some beautiful shots. If you go to my other website, chipshots, C-H-I-P-S-H-O-T-Z.com, and scroll to the bottom, there's a, there's a link there that will take you to, I don't know, 15 tips and tricks for taking better food photos. And nothing, it's not magical. It's not technical. There's, there's one where... Someone is standing there and the light's coming from behind them. So their body's casting a shadow onto the food. And of course, the shot looks awful. Right. But it's just taking the time to go in and intentionally take some of those shots. Again, with some practice and, and some looking around, I think most people could really amp up their, their food photo game. But lighting is key, right? Lighting is key. Yeah. In fact, I ended up buying a reflector right because you suggested i do that to improve my photos and i think it's still um in a (laughs) a drawer that (laughs) (laughs) never to be used but you raise a good point i mean your your wife is like watch okay here goes chip with his reflector again exactly but i mean that is sort of i mean i do feel a little self-conscious if i take too much time taking a photo yes you know first of all if you're at dinner with friends yes oh don't eat anything i'm going to take a photo (laughs) that's a little annoying well, and, and what about the owners of the restaurant? And Are it's they? done with, yeah. if you're going to dinner with Chip, you're, there's, <laughs> there's, there's going to be some photos taken. And, and I think all Don't of my friends Don't go hungry. Are, you got to wait. Right, for right, right. <laughs> and I do respect that. I'm not going to keep plates in front of me for hours on end, but typically I want to shoot. And again, people, people don't mind. They, they like being a part of the story. But you were taking, you know, professional photographs for uh, creative loafing, not just the photos I take for, you know, Facebook or, right. or Instagram. But right. um, tell us how that works out. As someone who has consumed so many restaurant reviews over the years and seen these beautiful photos, um, they're way better than I can take with my iPhone. So how does that work out? Do you, you call the restaurant in advance? And how does that happen? It depends. Uh, with creative loafing and other media outlets, especially if it's for a food critic, what happens, at least with Creative Loafing, is the food critic went in and ate first. They would then send me a list of what he had. And I'm talking about uh, John Palmer Claret, brilliant guy, awesome food critic. 
uh, they'd send me a list of what he had and I would then call the restaurant and say, hey, I'm coming in. I need to take some photos. But what that then gave the restaurant an opportunity to do was to make it look pristine. They would call the chef in, you know, they would make the plate look perfect because they knew I was coming and I was going to light it perfectly. And that's one way. But with the typically when I do any sort of restaurant review or food photos, I don't want them to know in advance. I want the people seeing my photos online. I want them to look at what my experience was because they're going to have the same experience. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you pull, you know, your camera out, people pay a little bit more attention. and I don't mind that. But I want to see the plate put in front of me the way the restaurant would do it and then be able to photograph it in the way that it's, it's typically presented. So there's a, there's a lot of different ways. Well, you're doing more photojournalism rather than food styling, which is a different kind of a... Of yes, a, with, of a with projects like that, that's true. But I certainly also do a lot of food styling when it comes to some commercial work. I've shot for cookbooks and websites and things like that. And again, some restaurants, chefs know about food styling, some not so much. And so I take my expertise there and I get out my culinary tweezers and, you know, try to make it all happen and look good. And so what happens to the food once you photograph it? That depends as well. If I'm working for a newspaper, uh, I, I can't take the food and I can't eat the food. That I, is so I, wrong. Exactly, because it's beautiful food. But think of the ethics of it. Hey, Chip, listen, thanks a lot for coming in and photographing this stuff. You want to take it with you? Yeah, I'll take it. Now there could be an expectation that the review is going to go better or that I'll put in a good word or something, and that's just not going to happen. Or we gave you the food, so now we can use the photos. And the answer is no. Hopefully the staff is eating it after you. Hopefully. And that's what I say. Listen, I didn't touch this. How about let's take it back to the kitchen and let them enjoy it. Let's go to the phones. We've got... um Attorney Douglas, Attorney Douglas, you are on the line. What's on your mind? Good morning, all. I wanted to say first and foremost, excited to see the photos. And I wanted to just, uh, you mentioned that the story in the call then. I wanted also to sing praises of Fred Hearn. I know he does chronicle a lot of oh, yeah. black inhabited portion. And I know the building that used to have Harbor First Watch. I can give a fun little story how my mother, another attorney, when she first came down, a lot of local black attorneys were in that building as they were close to the courthouse, and there was a large network of professionals who would allow their offices to be shared. And I think it's quite moving that you're able to capture some of the photos. In essence, like, you really want to connect on it because we are working on a book uh, of photos, a lot of black Main Street, a lot of Tampa, and breaking up, bringing it up into the different sectors and cultures that were in this awesome. melting pot known as Cigar City. And so I just want to say continue the wonderful work. And I also want to highlight the work being done at USF at the moment. It's an exhibit on a lot of the lost cemeteries right. here yep. in Hillsborough County. And I just know it's right in the message state wheelhouse of what's going on. But thank you so much for your watchful eye and just allowing multiple cultures from the, from the Tampa area to just chime in to talk about. The let, me, let me encourage you, uh, as you're looking maybe through the library images, to do a search for like Central Avenue because... When you think of the scrub and uh, sections like that that were in Tampa, there are some burger photos of, of that. So, uh, yeah, maybe just a, a look into Central Avenue uh, would, would be helpful with that as well. And also, send us your contact information to dj at wmnf.org because um, you sound like you might be a wave maker. We'd love, we love doing history shows. We did have Fred Hearns on our show as well. Yes, I heard. I know that he speaks your praises. That's why I wanted to say his name because he's too humble to sing his own praises. He is very <laughs> humble. We love Fred. Thank you again. Thanks, Thanks for calling in. Work and we'll be in touch. Take care. Bye bye.
Um, and we have an email from Beverly Keeney who says, do you have any photos of the Babe Zaharis golf course in Forest Hill, the Forest Hills area of Tampa? Our neighborhood did have a historic mark, marker erected in March. There are photos from Burgert Brothers of, of the Tudor-style clubhouse and the rooms. We no longer have that structure but want to preserve our legacy along um, with it. Um, you have any, is that in here? Uh, it's not in there. I don't know of any of actual the clubhouse. I know that there were some burger photos actually of Babe, and she's she's uh, she's walking around with a greyhound. So I guess she was a, a a dog fan and a greyhound. Another one that is in there is of the Park Motel on Kennedy Boulevard, mm-hmm. and it's still there. It's it's kind of beat up now, but what people don't realize is that her husband actually owned that. Uh, for a while. And so again, all these, you know, six degrees of separation on so much of Tampa. Yeah. Very interesting. I'm curious how you, how you got into photography because, um, your, your profession is a mental health counselor. Yes. Um, and you have been doing that for how long? Uh, The mental health counselor? Mm -hmm. Uh, 30 years. And so how did you make the shift? I mean, you're still a mental health counselor. I want to be clear. Right. I, I didn't. Um, it, they both kind of came to fruition at the same time. I got a film camera when I graduated high school, I think. And, and What's a film camera, Daddy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's funny sometimes. I still go out and shoot film and people, I'll take a picture and people will come up and say, hey, can I see it? And I'm like, no. You still, I didn't know they made film, right, Chip. That's, right. uh, okay, that's breaking news for me. So I, I got a film camera and I don't know what it was. It's, it's sort of the typical story that I developed my first role and I'm in the dark room and I put the paper into the solution and all of a sudden this image appears on this piece of paper and I thought that was magical mm-hmm. and that's what really hooked me and from there just kind of moved forward uh, I, I shot bodybuilders because a buddy of mine owned a, a gym and as you mentioned earlier graduated into the motorcycle magazine because I've ridden the same Harley now for 30 years and the biker crew is just so cool to photograph and then the gig with creative loafing started so it's, it's always been a fascination and a passion of mine and it really does counterbalance the idea about being a, a mental health counselor because sitting in a room with, you know, with people in pain all day long is they teach you in graduate school to do your best not to take that home with you. And I think I do a pretty good job. But the ability to go out and create and put my brain into a camera and to have that counterbalance uh, has been a really important aspect of my life because that's, it's, it's really important to not have that. Does one inform the other? It, it does. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a conservative cat, you know, politically at some level, not super conservative. But then I shot for this alt weekly newspaper, uh, Creative Loafing, which covers, you know, kind of the, the, the left end of things. And I loved it. But I think the crossover there is part of what they teach you in graduate school is it doesn't really matter what you think. It's are you able to embrace what people are saying to you to help them in their journey, sort of accepting them where they are and help them move forward the way that they see it. And I think that philosophy has helped me in photography as well. I don't, I don't care what your political leanings are. I don't care what your you know, sexual orientation is. Is there a story that you want me to help you tell and can I help do it? I, my opinion doesn't matter in situations like that. And I think having that experience in the clinical setting certainly helps in the photography setting because 
I'm able to be, I, I can go and shoot an LGBTQ event this afternoon and then go to a, you know, a biker who are really right leaning event tonight and not have an opinion about it. I'm just there to, to mm-hmm. tell the story. And I love that. You're part. an observer. You're, yes, you know, yeah. exactly. Um, so you had mentioned that uh, your new uh, two volume uh, set of books uh, was a, was a COVID project, uh, right. but COVID also shut down a lot of mental health. Yes. Uh, so did you shift, though, to a lot of mental health uh, professionals shifted to Zoom? Right. Uh, did that work for you? It did, uh, by necessity. And, and, and it wasn't necessarily Zoom because there's a lot of HIPAA laws that go around with doing teletherapy. So there were these portals that opened up and were made available to mental health professionals so that you could actually do the telehealth part. Uh, in a secure environment. And yes, it, it worked in a pinch. I am not a huge fan of it because I just don't think therapy is as effective uh, when you're not face-to-face and sort of sort of feeling one another and being able to read all that. It works, but I, I, I prefer the face-to-face. So you've gone back to the face-to-face now. So definitely. can you tell us a little bit about the Tampa Bay Regional Critical Incident Stress oh, Debriefing yeah. Team? Sure. And can you shorten that title first? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> T-B-R-C-I-T. Yeah, so you're working with law enforcement. Uh, Correct. What, what that team, and it's, again, I've been involved with that since the mid-90s. What we are is a, is a group of people, not only mental health professionals, but also first responders, fire, rescue, police, uh, all law enforcement. And it's a team that has adopted a model. We offer training to peers in uh, first responders. And the, our purpose is to respond when there is an event in an organization where uh, the leadership asks us to come in and do a debriefing or a diffusing or something like that. And essentially what we do is that we, we want to be able to respond to first responders who have been possibly traumatized or just had a difficult call. Many times it's a line of duty death. Many times, I think it's the majority of it, is when there's a child involved in a car accident or in a shooting or something like that. Human beings, uh, law enforcement, still feel it. They are absolutely professional in the way they handle things, and yet our ability to go in and respond when, when asked is an important concept, and I'm proud to be part of that team. Well, I mean, I think we've seen in in news stories about some of the mass shootings, the way yes. some people, you know, law enforcement or ever responded to them, that they right. are human beings right. that are scared and and dealing with and they horrible have children tragedy, of their children own, of their own, and watching children. all this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it is it usually that kind of like violence, or are you also dealing with maybe would it be a hurricane or a natural disaster or something like that? Not typically with first responders. I mean, it could be depending on the intensity of it, but usually it's something that's that's more more amped up and you know more professionally related, like with a line of duty death or something along those lines, or something that is very relatable. Like you said, they have kids, and they go to this scene where there's a uh, just a difficult, difficult thing to see where a child has been involved, and of course, then these human beings relate to that. And it's, it can be a challenge as well. I, you know, I've done a lot of work with the military and it's, it's difficult because there's uh, kind of OG thinking of, I don't need help, you know, it kind of soldier on, which I can respect and appreciate. And yet I think what people find out is that if they're in a place where they can trust the folks that are working with them and know that everything is confidential, that they can be human and they can use some of that time to, for their own benefit. And I think this is Suicide Prevention Month, so, so, yes. of course, so the, 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 the suicide rate among the military is 
yes. off the charts, right? Yes, is that the so. same for law enforcement, or is that a little bit less so? Because I think it's less so, but it's certainly an element there, um, especially over the last several years. I think there has been an, an increase in suicide and self-harm in first responders because things have just intensified. So, And of course, um, now you specialize in marriage counseling. Yes. Tom and I are married. We've yes. got just a couple minutes left. So just your <laughs> observations as a married couple doing a radio show together, how are we doing? We're signaling to each other. Yes. We're communicating. Yep. Do you have high hopes for us? I do. I, I do. <laughs> I, I will tell you that I have certainly seen couples in my practice that uh, have attempted to work together, but that starts at home. There needs to be that mutual respect. There needs to be that ability to understand, you know, kind of like with me, that I have a certain way of thinking, but when I'm on the job or whatever, I can't take that with me. I need to be able to understand the people that I'm dealing with. And the same thing is true with marriage. I preach it all the time. It, you don't have to agree with one another, but your ability to understand where your partner is coming from and how they operate is of the utmost. And you guys working together is fantastic. Well, I, I would say that, frankly, working with Tom, I enjoy working with Tom more than most of the people I've worked with in my life. <laughs> I would say the same. Because I actually like him. I do. Res- I wouldn't have married him if I didn't like him and respect him. So, right. you know, which is at, right. at work, you're often thrown together with people that you don't really have anything in common with. Yes. You know, so it's, it's a completely different experience. And, you know, I think also uh, listening is so important. So important. Right? I mean, I, I think that's true whether the relationship is a marriage where the relationship is a uh, workplace right. relationship, right? How different would our culture look right now if we got on this idea of let me listen first. Let me just try to understand where you're coming from. I'm not going to agree with you, but I'm going to take a second to hear what you're saying and, and spit it back to you so that you know that what I'm saying versus I'm right. Because that right being thing is a constant in troubled marriages and you know in troubled culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, we just got a few minutes left. So, Chip, tell us one more time um, where people can get your book and see your photographs. Awesome. You can see the photographs at oldtampaphotos.com. Uh, you can buy the book at the Tampa Bay History Center or also on oldtampaphotos.com. Uh Thank you so much for being with us. Thank I really you appreciate so much. it. Really um, it. Thank you, um, Irene, for um, answering the phones with us. We have coming up in a in a couple weeks is the fun drive for um, WMNF. So if you like what you're hearing right now on the show, you should uh, go to WMNF.org and hit the tip jar and make a donation. It's not too soon to make a donation to Wavemakers. If we you have love a Wavemakers, really makers. cool thank you gift that we're not going to talk about right now in detail, but our WMNF listeners are going to. Love it. And we depend on you. 70% of um, our uh, of our bills are paid with uh, listener support. So go ahead and go to WMNF.org. We're not going to go on at length too much about that. Lots of great stuff coming up um, later on today. Up next is um, Alternative Radio. And then there's fantastic music um, from Harrison Nash. You are listening to WMNF Tampa.